0: Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.MtZionChula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. as you turn there think with think this morning what is the greatest gift of being saved some might answer that it's that you get to see loved ones again one day in heaven and that's certainly going to be wonderful I'm so excited to see so many people again but biblically speaking that's not the greatest gift some would answer that it's having a transformed life Your life was a complete wreck before you were saved, and Jesus cleaned you up. And that is a beautiful picture of God's redemption. It really is. But that's not the greatest gift, biblically speaking. Some would answer that it gives you the strength to get through hard times. Probably the phrase I hear the most as a pastor is, I don't know how people who don't know God get through these things. And we certainly have a great hope And um, we have a great hope that carries us through difficult times, but that's not the greatest gift, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, the greatest gift of being saved is something you've probably heard very little about. You've probably um, heard very little about it. I have a master's from a theological institution, and prior to studying for this sermon series, I'd given very little thought to this specific doctrine. Um, I've had my eyes open to a whole new world this year as I've studied this. This doctrine is the umbrella under which all the blessings of salvation sit. As we spend the next few weeks discussing everything that happens when you get saved, this has to go first as it's what everything else flows from. Forgiveness of sin comes from this. Eternal life in heaven comes from this. um, A redeemed life. um, Adoption into God's family. All of that wonderful stuff comes because of this. The greatest gift of being saved It's called union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's being united with Christ. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Adrian and I got married May twenty 2017. We're coming up on five years of marriage this May. Um, Aside from the day I was born again, it was the most important day of my life. Um, When we got married, I was a seminary student, and I owned very little. Um, Prior um, to being married, I lived in the campus dorm. Um, And so, like, it just timed out, we got married at the beginning of the summer, so as I left the dorm, Adrian came down here for the wedding, I moved into the apartment and stayed there for a week, and then I came down to Georgia where the wedding was, where she was, while I was there. Um... I had very little to my name when I moved out of the dorm and moved into the apartment. I had all my clothes, I had a big stack of books, I had my car and a mini fridge. I sold the mini fridge. So when I moved it from the dorm into our apartment when we got married, I fit everything I owned into my tiny car out there that that I still have. And I moved in one trip, that's all it took. When we got married, I became the owner of all of her stuff. I got a couch, and a loveseat, and a chair, and a television, and a kitchen table, and a microwave, and two beds, and a dresser, and so much more. All of it became mine, because remember, what's mine is mine, and what's hers is mine. (laughs) I became the owner of all that stuff, because I entered into the covenant of marriage with her. She got the lesser end of the deal. Because remember, all I've got are some clothes and a stack of books. But on top of that, I, like many people my age, took out a ton of student loans to go to college. And because I went into grad school right after college, I got to defer the payments of those loans until after I was done with seminary. So we got married, and I hadn't thrown a dollar at these student loans. So I've got this five-digit sum of money that I owe sitting there when we get married um, if I make the minimum payment on them, we'll, we'll pay them off by the time I'm almost 40 or something like that. Hopefully we can pay it off before that. But So upon entering marriage, she got all my debts too. I got all kinds of stuff I didn't have to pay for. She got a student loan debt of five digits. This is one of the many reasons that the Marriage covenant represents the relationship of Christ and his people so much. He bore all of our debts and paid them in full, and we receive all the blessings of heaven that we did not pay for. In fact, Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of them. If we're in Christ, all of the spiritual blessings of heaven are ours. All of our sin debt is his, all of his blessing is ours. So all those things I spoke of at the beginning of the sermon, um, you know, eternal life in heaven with your loved ones and a redeemed life and strength to get through hard times, they're simply the blessings that come as the result of being united with Christ. That's why being united with Christ is even better. When you understand the idea of union with Christ, of being in Christ, You'll begin to see it all over the New Testament when you, when you read it. It's truly everywhere. Uh, the words in Christ appear 167 times in the 13 letters of Paul. 27 of those times are in the book of Ephesians alone. Maybe you go home this afternoon and read the book of Ephesians all at once. You can read it in 20 minutes. And just take a pen and underline every time you see in Christ or in him or in the beloved. It's there everywhere. You're going to see it all over the Bible. So what is union with Christ, and how does it happen? Notice what this text says. Verse 3, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've been baptized not into water, into Christ Jesus. So let's talk about baptism. Because what we tend to do with baptism is we tend to either overemphasize it or underemphasize it. We underemphasize it by saying, it doesn't really matter if you get baptized or not. It doesn't save you. And we overemphasize it by thinking it's how we get saved. Two bad things to do. Um, first and foremost, baptism is not what saves you. It, it's not what saves you. You shouldn't get baptized if you haven't been saved, and you don't get saved by being baptized. You don't go to heaven because you were baptized. You do not miss out on heaven because you have not been baptized. I remind you, the thief on the cross next to Jesus had not been baptized. And he got to go to heaven with Jesus when he died. But remember last week, you're saved only if you have repented of your sins and believed in the gospel. That's what saves you. That and that alone is what saves a person. Baptism is not what does it. But if you're saved but you've never been baptized... You need to get baptized. It's the first command of obedience to Christ. It's the first thing he tells us to do. You need to be baptized after you were saved. So you know my story. I walked an aisle in a church when I was 11. I repeated after the pastor. It was a church that believed baptism saved you. So he immediately took me up and baptized me like right then. And, um, and I walked away not saved. I was 11. I actually got saved at age 15. And so I got baptized again at age 15, because you get baptized after you were saved. If you got baptized before you got saved, that baptism was nothing. You just took a bath. If you're here and you got baptized when you were a kid, but you were actually saved later, you need to get baptized again. What is baptism? Well, it's right there in the text. First of all, it's public identification with the death of Christ. Uh, We've been baptized into his death, verse 3. It's public identification with that death. That's why often when a former Muslim gets baptized, his family will say, you're dead to me, because frankly, he is. Um, He's dead to the whole world. But it's also a physical picture of what has happened spiritually, Uh, I recite verse 4 every time I baptize somebody. When I take them under the water, I say, you've been buried with Christ in death, and you've been raised to walk in the newness of life. I say, raised to walk in the newness of life as I bring the person up. I do that. Most every pastor I know that does baptisms says that. Baptism is a physical picture of what has already happened on the spiritual level. It works like this. Before Jesus, all people die physically and spiritually spiritually at the same time, at the same time. We will all one day die on earth and be buried. Those who end up in hell are called spiritually dead. Revelation 21.8 calls hell the second death, the first being our physical death. All of us will physically and spiritually die at some point because that's the result of sin. All of us are under that curse. All sinners die, body and soul. Even if we're saved, spiritual death has to happen. But now that Jesus has come and died and risen again, we have the opportunity to change when our spiritual death happens. When our spiritual death happens. Instead of it happening forever in hell, Jesus provided a way for him to have endured our spiritual death on the cross. He's already taken it for us. So when Jesus died, he experienced in six hours what the unsaved experience in hell forever. He endured the debt we owe. He took it. So, if we repent of our sins and believe the gospel, we're baptized into his death. We become part of that death that already happened. Therefore, our spiritual death has already taken place. We spiritually die and we're spiritually raised. Hear how Ephesians 2 puts it. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of this, Now when we die, we're able to spiritually live forever because our spiritual self has already died and been raised. We're able to live forever with God because we've already experienced our spiritual death in Jesus. Our soul goes to be with God when we die until the day comes that God brings history to an end. On that day, God will raise every corpse from the grave. He will raise all of them. And the state of your soul before you died will determine what happens to your body. The souls who have already endured spiritual death through Christ will live forever, reunited with their bodies. You will not be a spirit forever. You will not be some primordial soup spirit forever. No, you will have a body. God will take the body that is in the grave and raise it up and resurrect it, and you will live in that body forever. The body I'm preaching to you from right now is the body I'm going to live in forever, but it's going to be made whole again. It's going to be resurrected. And the same with you. The one you're sitting in that chair with right now is the one you're going to live in forever. God's going to repair your body and take the curse of sin off of it. The souls that died without Christ will be reunited in that moment with their bodies and they will endure the second death forever. Getting saved is surrendering yourself to the spiritual death and allowing Christ to live through you galatians 2 20 i've been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me and the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me i no longer live i don't live anymore aaron fraser died october 31st 2007 christ has been living through me ever since and the same for you whatever day you got saved I still physically live. I still walk around. I still get older. I still, you know, continue on through my life, but it's Christ's life now, not my own. That is what union with Christ is. It is no longer living your own life, being baptized into Christ's death and being baptized into his resurrection so that now he lives his life through you. So how does this work? Verse four, how does this work that we've been Buried with Christ and raised with him. Well, the same way baptism works. Your old self goes into the water and stays dead. You're raised to walk in the newness of life to the glory of the Father. Your life after you're saved is defined by verse 4 there. It's newness of life. It's new. You now live your newness of life by faith in the Son of God. That's what it looks like in everyday life. This is one of the ways you can know if you're saved or not. Do you have regular fellowship with Christ? Do, do you, that's not what saves you, but it's a good indication of if you've been saved. Do you have regular fellowship with Christ? Because if, you're, if you've been saved, you are united to him. You're in him and he's in you. He is part of your life and you are part of his. It's not something you'll have to muster up in yourself, like, you know, you just put forth enough effort and you'll feel like really spiritual. No, it's simply the case. You're, you're united to Christ. He's grabbed a hold of you and made you part of himself. So think about your life now. Is, is Jesus an actual person in your life? Or is he a historical figure you come to hear about on Sunday morning? Is he actually part of your life the same way your brother is, the same way your best friend is, the same way your mom is? Like, is he actually part of your life, or is he just an interesting historical figure that you hear some things about every week? Think about your life. Is Jesus a real person to you? Maybe you say, probably not as much as he should be, but no, stop there. Stop there. This isn't based on how much you can muster up in yourself. No, if you are saved, Christ has grabbed a hold of you and united you to himself. That that happens whether you want it to or not when you get saved. When you repent of your sins and believe, Christ does that in you. If Jesus is not a real person in your life, you should ask, am I really saved? Because if I was, I would experience union with Christ. Union with Christ is God's work not yours. It's like me asking you, were you born as a baby? Well, it's not a thing of you saying, I don't always act like it. No, it's a thing of you were. If you're a grown-up, if you're, you know, if you're living and breathing on this earth, no matter what age you are, you were born as a baby. And you didn't, you didn't do anything to make that happen. Like you just showed up crying and hungry. You didn't make any decision to be born as a baby. It happened. So how does this work practically? How does it work practically to be in fellowship with Christ? Well, let's detour to two passages of the Bible. Hold your spot in Romans 6. Turn to Colossians 3, which is where we were, which is where I read this morning when when I opened up the service. Colossians 3. I've already read this passage this morning, but I'm going to read it again because it's just so good. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Being united with Christ will result in a mind that is set on things above, not on things that are on this earth. Is your life consumed with the things above or the things below? That's the question you ask yourself. Because if you've been raised with Christ, you are spiritually seated with him in the heavenly places. You're hidden with Christ and God. That's what the passage says there. So where else would your mind be but on heavenly things? If you live your entire life never thinking about anything above if you can go an entire week and never once think of Jesus, you need to question, am I united to him? Because you would think I would be thinking on him during a typical week if I was. And then John 15. John 15. I uh, read a verse from this earlier when I was about to pray, but not this one. John fifteen four and 5. Abide in me and I in you. like the rest of the chapter later, because it, it, it just fleshes that out so much more. starts talking about the fruit that you bear and how um, we're like that branch all together and, and just so many great things. Relationship with Jesus is like a vine and a branch. It's like a vine and a branch. The, the branches have to abide in the vine or they're nothing but firewood. They're nothing but firewood. We abide in Christ. We live in him. He has united us to himself. We now experience his life like flowing through a vine and a branch. If a branch is separated from a vine, it's dead. It's not useful for anything. There's no life flowing through it. What will a life united to Christ look like? Well, as I said, go read the rest of John 15 later. But just to give you an overview, it'll involve hungering for God's word It'll involve fervent prayer. It'll involve bearing spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. It'll involve um, obeying the commands of Jesus. It'll involve fullness of joy. It'll involve love for other people and love for the church. It'll involve friendship with Christ. It'll involve, you'll continue to follow him when you don't feel it. This is why it's so foolish for someone to say, I'm going to love Jesus but have no part in the church. Because if you're saved, you're united with Christ, and so are the other people at church. In fact, when we take the Lord's Supper in a minute uh, in, in a few minutes, that's the celebration of union with Christ. That's what we're doing. We're, we're not doing some empty ritual. Frankly, this is, this is a really weird ritual if we're just doing a ritual. Um, at least, I mean, at least fill up a giant cup, um, not just a little you know, shot glass, at least do something like that. It's a weird dead ritual if that's all we're doing. No, we're celebrating union with Christ. We take the bread and the juice to remind us that we are united to Christ by his body and his blood. That's why I make the caveat before we take the Lord's Supper every single time that if you're not saved and you're not baptized, don't take of this. Scripture says you're not supposed to. You enter the covenant with Christ by salvation, and then baptism is the first step. It's the sign of the covenant, the way circumcision was of the Old Testament. And you couldn't take the Passover meal until you'd been circumcised. You shouldn't take the Lord's Supper until you've been baptized. You can't take of Christ's body and blood if you're not united to Christ. Not only this, not only all the stuff that I've just named, you will not be able to remain in your sin If you're united to Christ, look at verses back in Romans. We're going to be back in Romans for good now. Back in Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Should I continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who who died to sin still live in it? You will not be able to live in your sin if you're in Christ. You, You can't do it. You can't possibly, if you're in Christ, make excuses for why your sin is okay if you're united to him. You know, this would be wrong for anybody else, but in my particular circumstance, it's okay. No, Christ is the all-knowing God. He knows your circumstance, and he still says it's sin. He, he will not let you stay in your sin. He will make you so uncomfortable that you will not be able to remain in it for long. And so are you actively living in sin and refusing to repent? I ask you to consider if you're truly united with Christ, truly saved, because he says if you have died to sin, you cannot continue living in it. You wouldn't possibly be able to live in sin if you were united to him. 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Three verses later, 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You can't keep on sinning if you're born again. No, not that you don't need to. You Christ being in you will not let you. Is that your life experience? If it's not, examine yourself to see if you're united to him. If you are united to Christ, you will have a deep and abiding fellowship with Christ. And with the other people united with Christ. This is his work in you. This is not something you can try harder to achieve. No, if you don't have union with Christ, which you will know as sure as you know whether or not you've been born as a baby, then you have not been born again And you need to come to him truly through repentance and faith. Make no mistake. Life with Christ begins now. It doesn't begin when we die and go to heaven one day. No, Christ unites himself to you in a marriage covenant here on the earth. And you live in fellowship with him that only gets better when you die one day. And so what comes in the future? That's verse 5. Look at verse 5 of Romans 6. If we've been united with him in death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the joy that is coming. I don't want to spend too much time talking about this specific topic as we're talking about salvation. I'm going to spend a whole sermon talking about eternal life in heaven one day. So I'm not going to steal too much thunder from that. But just understand, you are united with him in death. And you will be united with him in resurrection as well. Just as he was raised from the dead, you will be too. And that is when all of this comes to full consummation, when the whole story of the Bible comes to full consummation. Like, if you could think of the story of the Bible, it's essentially the story of God restoring fellowship with man, right? The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there with God, and they are walking with him perfectly. There's no evil, there's no sin, everything's as it should be. And they disobey him, and they get thrown out of the garden. And for the rest of the Bible, God is slowly moving back toward mankind to dwell with them. He does it with the tabernacle. It's a little tent that they have to carry around the wilderness, and they set it down, and God goes down into it. They, they make that a little more formal when they build the temple so the, the priest can go meet with God. The temple gets destroyed, and then Jesus comes to the earth, so now there's an actual person on earth named Emmanuel, God with us. And then Jesus ascends back to the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit dwells within believers. And so God is dwelling on earth with man in the bodies of believers. All of this is leading to the new heavens and the new earth. And and if you read that in Revelation, it's described, it's given specific dimensions for that city. And it's in the shape of a cube. And if you were going to read the Bible and wonder what is the shape of a cube, you would know that it's the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament, the place on earth where God dwelt that only the priest could go visit once a year. Then the entire new heavens and new earth is shaped like a cube to represent that the entire creation is a temple where God dwells, where not just the priest can go, but all people can go. That's what we're moving toward. That's what union with Christ is building to. So we return to that question that I asked at the beginning of the service. What is the greatest gift of being saved? It's not forgiveness of sins. It's not eternal life in heaven one day. It's not strength to make it through hard times. The greatest gift of being saved is union with Christ. You get eternal fellowship with the one who created you and loves you. All those other things come from being his. They're simply icing on the cake. Remember, I became the owner of all of Adrian's stuff when we got married. And it was real nice having a couch. I never had a couch before that day. It was real nice having a kitchen table and having a TV. You know, the the dorm provided those, but they were pretty janky. Um, I got some, some for my own. But... But none of that compared to having a wife. None of that compared to having a wife, which was the greatest benefit of the marriage covenant. When you are united with Christ in a covenant, all of those things we love about being saved are the stuff we inherit. We inherit forgiveness of sin. We inherit eternal life one day. We inherit adoption into God's family. All the things we are going to talk about over the next few weeks. But the greatest thing about being saved is not the stuff we inherit it's the one we inherit it from. Here's the truth you need to understand about your life. Why were you created by God? Why did God just think, I'm gonna create some people? Why did He do that? Isaiah 43:7 says he created you for his glory. Colossians 1 says that Jesus was, that, that everything in existence was created by Jesus and for Jesus. He created it for his glory. You were created to know God and bring glory to God. You were created by God for Jesus. And we had no access to the kind of life we were created for before we were saved because sin had built a chasm between that. But now, Upon repentance of our sins and faith in the gospel, Christ unites us to himself. He builds a bridge back across the chasm so you can go back to the life you were created for. And we get God himself and we get friendship with Christ. And John 17 actually says that we've been brought into the life of the Trinity. The the Holy Spirit is in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in God the Father. It's an incredible mystery. But do you understand how wonderful this is? Do you understand how much you do not deserve this? If you could truly understand how wonderful it is to be united to Christ, you would be satisfied and happy for the rest of your life. This is what we were made for. You weren't made to do little unimportant things every single day. You weren't made just to start a family and work a job and retire and die. Like, don't you realize in your life, even if you have the most wonderful life, there's got to be something more than this daily routine that you live every day of going to work and coming home and going to bed and doing it again the next day. And there is. There is. You were made to know and enjoy the God who created you for endless days, never ending. And you had no access to that before Jesus saved you. But now... Through being saved by Jesus, you are literally brought into the fellowship of the triune God in heaven. What a wonderful thing. Oh, may our souls awake with joy over this. How can we not cheer over this? Why is my soul always so downcast and lacking joy when I'm united to the Son of God? Why should I ever feel discouraged in life again? What could ever make me have a bad day for the rest of my life? I'm united with Christ forever. This is the greatest gift I could have ever been given. And not only was I given it in full, I did not deserve it, and I didn't do anything for it. No. It was all poured out from the gracious hand of the one who gave it. We are united to Christ, and he is the one who chose to do that, despite the fact that we didn't deserve it. Let's pray. Lord, what joy that that you saved us and you united us to yourself. We did not deserve it. We um, so often don't even recognize how wonderful it is. But Lord, it's wonderful. Lord, make us know the joy of it. Make us know the glory of it. And I pray in Jesus' name that you make this so real to us, Lord. Um, Lord, I I think back to, I, I didn't really dwell on this very much when I was learning the doctrines of the faith in seminary. Why was that? Why is it just now coming to me this year as I'm studying for this sermon series? May you enter our lives with this glorious truth of union with Christ and, and completely change all of us with it. Oh Lord, make us know the goodness of it. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.